This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. On this episode, I want to take a minute and talk about what makes a new vehicle influential in the car business and why some cars are really influential and some cars aren't. And I'll also talk about my opinion on what I think are the three most influential new car launches of the past 25 years. And so each of these new car launches have substantially shifted the automotive business in some way. And so I'm really excited to discuss each of these cars with you. And also on this episode, we have another rental car roulette where I spend some time with a Ford Escape. And I'm very excited about this review because this particular Ford Escape has a 1.5 liter three-cylinder engine, which is a little bit quirky for a new car. And let's start by talking about what makes a car influential in the car business. So I think there are several main criteria that a new vehicle launch for a manufacturer needs to meet for the car to become influential, and it needs to achieve all of the following. So first, in my opinion, it has to be a car and a new product launch that changes the underlying assumptions of what a car could or could not be. So for example, it has to change how industry insiders and consumers think about what it means to be a luxury car or a sports car or an environmentally friendly car in some way, shape, fashion, or form. It has to challenge our preconceived notions of what particular types of cars or particular brands of cars are. The second major criteria that an influential product launch needs to meet, in my opinion, is that it has to achieve some degree of technical advancement and facilitate the propagation and and proliferation of the advancement. So not only does it have to introduce some new technology or design language, it also has to be a technology or design philosophy that this product unveiling and this product launch inspires others to do the same. And so when I talk about launching some new technology, it doesn't necessarily have to be the first car to have a particular technology, but it needs to be the car that is the turning point for that technology and helps that particular technology become much more mainstream and widespread in its adoption. The third major criteria is that the car has to be a commercial success relative to the industry and the manufacturer's expectations going into the car. So consumers have to be willing to buy the new car at much higher than expected levels than what our preconceived notions inside the industry would have led us to believe how that particular car would have sold. And fourth, the car has to be an important one for the manufacturer. So it has to be a car that eventually comes to either define the brand, materially change the course of the company, or generate an overproportionate levels of profits for the automaker, or in some way, shape, fashion, or form, marks a turning point for the business itself. So with the criteria established, I'll talk about three of the most influential product launches, in my opinion, from the past 25 years, and my rationale for choosing each of them. And so in third place on my list is the 1999 Lexus RX300. And at the time, this was a midsize luxury crossover. And and so in today's marketplace, the idea of a compact or midsize luxury crossover is so mainstream and commonplace and well accepted 
that we don't really think about it. And these cars are often the backbones of luxury automakers' lineups in terms of delivering volume and profitability. So these compact and mid-sized luxury SUVs are more profitable than their sedan equivalents. They sell in higher volumes, and they are the cars that consumers are looking for when they walk into a Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Lexus, or Acura dealership. And there's so many choices in compact and mid-sized luxury crossovers that it's almost overwhelming to sort through them all if you're a shopper looking for one. And there's so many different interpretations of what a compact or mid-sized luxury crossover should be. And there's pretty much a different luxury crossover for every single person out there and all these different tastes. But all of today's luxury crossovers can trace their core lineage back to the 1999 Lexus RX 300. So that makes this car super influential because while the Lexus RX was not the first compact or mid-sized luxury crossover where that distinction technically goes to the 1997 Infiniti QX4, it was, however, far more influential than any previous luxury SUV or crossover in terms of setting the tone for what a luxury crossover should be for the next 25 years. So uh, most industry insiders credit the Lexus RX as the luxury crossover that shifted the market's perceptions of what an SUV needed to be and what a luxury SUV needed to be. So up until this point, everyone assumed that luxury SUVs needed to be rugged and capable off-road and at least project the image that they could go anywhere and do anything despite being very luxurious. But the 1999 Lexus RX just dropped any pretense of being an off-road car. So Toyota came out and explicitly said, we have designed this car primarily for suburban driving. We have designed this car to take to Costco, to take to soccer games, and to take on family road trips. This car is not really meant for you to take off-road or to take into the woods or to take on, on dirt paths. So this car is built for suburbia. And it looked like an egg-shaped vehicle more than a, the squared-off boxy SUVs of the era. But in dropping this pretense and making this trade-off, Lexus and Toyota were able to really focus on what consumers were really using their luxury SUVs for. And it was primarily these suburban duties. So they were able to design this car to be much easier to drive and live with on a daily basis than the previous more off-road and rugged focused SUVs. So they made the seating height kind of this optimal level between a car and the trucks. They made visibility really good for, so it was super easy for you to see out. They made the interior laid out extremely well with lots of storage compartments and very easy to use controls. And they overall just made this luxury crossover and the idea of driving an SUV very approachable. Plus this car was sold through Lexus dealers who have a strong reputation for customer service and providing a high-end consumer experience. And this car was way easier to drive and live with on a day-to-day -day basis and Lexus priced it to be a substantially better value than competing mid-sized luxury SUVs, including the more rugged Mercedes-Benz M-Class and Infiniti QX4 of the era. So by changing the mindset and shifting the definition of what a luxury SUV should be, Lexus was able to focus on the things that consumers wanted the most out of these cars, optimize the cars for those things, 
and pass on a lot of the savings to consumers in the form of a lower MSRP because while you could get the Lexus RX with an all-wheel drive system, it didn't have a super sophisticated off-road focused four-wheel drive system like the M-Class or the QX4 and it didn't have substantial towing capabilities like those cars and what the key innovation from Lexus here is that the vast majority of buyers don't particularly care about that capability in an SUV. They just want something that can be, in, in essence, a more stylish minivan of sorts. And so the car's key advancement in design and engineering was its explicit use of a car-based platform that was never meant to be off-road. So by dropping any pretense that this car should be something that you take off-road, Toyota took a gamble that shoppers wanted all these good things about an SUV, the tall seating position, the big cargo area, and all-wheel drive, but they didn't want to give up um, and take the trade-offs that the luxury SUVs made you take at the time, including poor fuel economy, kind of a rougher truck-like ride, cramped interiors, and the really high price tag of these competing cars. And Toyota bet correctly. Consumers loved the RX300, and they started buying them in droves, and the RX300 overtook the Lexus ES300 sedan as the best-selling Lexus product in the lineup shortly. And the RX contributed heavily to Lexus's profitability and dominance throughout the 2000s as the best-selling luxury car maker in America. And interestingly for Toyota, this car was not terribly expensive to develop because they had already done a lot of the engineering work for the related Toyota Camry and Lexus ES300 products. And seeing the success of the Lexus RX, Toyota used a uh, similar design to create the 2001 Toyota Highlander, which would also become very influential in its own right. And this car was super important for Toyota and Lexus. So uh, it was important for the industry as a whole because it shifted our mindsets, both as people in the industry and as consumers, of what an SUV could be and what a luxury SUV could be. And it sparked this whole market segment of car-based luxury SUVs that made no claims about off-road capabilities. And so this included cars like the Infiniti FX, the Cadillac SRX, the BMW X3 and X5, the Audi Q5, and the Lincoln MKX, among others. And so while some of these cars would advertise a little bit about their off-road capabilities, the main emphasis was on day-to-day -day usability and livability in our daily lives. And so the Lexus RX permanently shifted consumers and industry insiders' views on what a luxury SUV could be, and more generally, what an SUV should be. And so we, we start to see the dawn of an age of even mainstream crossovers being focused on the day-to-day -day mission versus the off-road capabilities of the SUVs from the 90s. And so Toyota made a lot of money on this product, and it shifted all of our views, and consumers loved this car, and it spawned a whole kind of lineup of car-based SUVs to come, and so that makes this car profoundly influential, in my opinion. So the second place most influential product on my list is not actually one car in particular, but it's a family of products that shared a common characteristic and trait, and this common characteristic was profoundly influential on the car market at the time and is still profoundly influential today, although not in the format I think the automaker intended. And second place here is 
the Volkswagen Group family of clean diesel TDI powertrain products. So the backstory here is in 2009, Volkswagen introduced this new technology that would help its diesel engines meet the strict U.S. emission standards and achieve really high fuel economy numbers, but also be relatively clean in terms of how much they polluted. And VW bet heavily on this technology to have a unique selling point against their competitors in the U.S. market because they were the first to go really mainstream with this new clean diesel technology. So automakers had dabbled with diesel passenger cars in the past to mixed success in the United States because we have stricter uh, air pollution laws that disadvantage diesel engines relative to gasoline engines compared with Europe where diesel powertrains are much more popular. And so in the U.S., diesels had always been kind of a niche product. But beginning in 2009, Volkswagen decided to try and grow this niche substantially by offering this clean diesel powertrain. So from their perspective, they said that these cars were no compromises cars. You could get 50 miles a gallon. They were really fun to drive. They were fairly powerful. And these were nice cars that were nice places to be. And they were relatively affordable. So they were more expensive than their counterparts by several thousand dollars. But Volkswagen put this into a lot of cars that were accessible to a large portion of the population. And so Volkswagen put clean diesel TDI engines into a huge portion of its product portfolio. And so they put it in the Golf, the Jetta, the Passat, the Audi A3, the Audi A6, the Audi Q7, and also the Porsche Cayenne diesel. And there's lots of really good documentaries and books that document how Volkswagen developed the TDI engine and how it was later discovered to be fraudulent and involved some cheating on Volkswagen's behalf to pass emissions testing. I find this family of products to be extremely influential for a variety of reasons. So I'm not going to talk about the details of Volkswagen's cheating on this product. I think that is worth its own episode to discuss at some point during this podcast. But I want to focus on how influential the TDI powertrain was on the automotive market, both when the cars were launched and the first generation of TDI engines came out in 2009, as well as today. And so when the cars were launched, beginning with the 2009 Jetta, everybody in the industry was in awe that VW had accomplished this really difficult engineering feat and had figured out how to make a clean diesel powertrain be cost effective. So up until this point, Volkswagen had sold diesels before, but they were fairly niche and they weren't fairly clean either. And so they were having a tougher time meeting increasingly tightening U.S. emissions regulations. Notably, Mercedes-Benz also sold a diesel E-Class sedan for many years. But at this point in time, Mercedes-Benz was just beginning to investigate the use of clean diesel techniques to make its diesel emissions Uh, lower to meet the U.S. standard. And Mercedes had also introduced a new diesel engine, I think beginning with the 2007 or 2008 model year in the E-Class sedan, but they acknowledged that this was very expensive technology and that it was going to require a fair bit of maintenance by the owner. And so they priced the diesel version of the E-Class at a premium, at a substantial premium to the gas car to reflect this difference. And so the The diesel E-Class was always kind of a niche product, but VW wanted to take it mainstream. Their diesel engines required less maintenance and and were less complex than the Mercedes powertrain, and 
at the time, everybody was really puzzled as to how they had accomplished this, and they had acknowledged how much of an engineering success this had been. And so for Volkswagen, this, especially in the U.S., this was a saving grace. And so they were betting heavily on their diesel technology to boost sales in the United States. And these cars were really interesting and attractive to a specific segment of the marketplace. So they were no compromises cars, and they weren't fully mainstream. They built a really large niche in the marketplace, and they sold really well. And even before... Uh, the this and before the scandal all all blew up, diesel Volkswagens had fantastic resale value and were super easy to sell when you no longer wanted to drive yours. And shoppers loved these cars. And so other automakers, seeing that an increasing number of people were interested in diesel-powered passenger cars again, started to look into developing their own clean diesel technology. So this included Mazda who eventually did launch a CX, a CX-5 with a diesel engine, although they could never truly get the cost down, so they had to sell it at, I think, a six or $7,000 premium, which made it not worth it. Uh, Honda allegedly looked into a clean diesel powertrain, but they never made it very far in the development process and so never offered one in the United States. And General Motors actually offered a diesel version of its Chevrolet Cruze compact sedan to compete with the VW Jetta. And GM's cruise diesel, at the time, the reviewer said it was maybe not as strong and not as well thought out as Volkswagen's. So in hindsight, we probably know a little bit of why there was that gap in performance between Volkswagen and General Motors. But um, the TDI powertrain family launched this huge interest amongst other automakers and maybe catering to consumer demand for these really high fuel economy cars. And this was a market that nobody had really thought about until Volkswagen had made it mainstream. And so this this was kind of the beginnings of a potential path for an alternative fuel technology in the U.S. marketplace uh, to try and move away from gasoline uh, because even though gas is very expensive today, it was also very expensive kind of around 2009, 2010, era, 2011 era, kind of for those few years there. And so people were very concerned about fuel economy. Uh, But of course, as documented in the press and a bunch of other places, Volkswagen's TDI technology was a mirage. And they faced a lot of penalties and, and investigations, and they had to conduct this very expensive recall and buyback program for the affected cars. And their reputation was hit really, really hard. And the company terminated several executives, both in Germany and in the United States. And the legacy of the TDI cars live on. I think um, the TDI cars forced Volkswagen to really focus on the next generation technology now that they've realized that diesels are kind of a dead end in terms of clean air and improving the environmental footprint of vehicles. So they invested and went all in on electrification. And as part of their settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice, they had to spend $2 billion to build a U.S. electric vehicle charging network and promoting electric vehicles, which is currently the Electrify America charging network. And so their network is one of several that the United States will probably rely upon for fast charging electric vehicles during long distance driving. So that's largely the legacy of the TDI products. It's not the actual TDI cars themselves, which still have a little bit of a niche following post 
emission scandal, but certainly not quite the following they had before the scandal revealed itself. And these products fundam fundamentally changed the company. So the firm had to subject itself to substantially more monitoring and governance. Uh, the, the CEO, Martin Winterkorn, resigned. And so the firm abandoned, largely abandoned its diesel technologies altogether. Although Volkswagen, I believe, still sells some diesel products in Europe, and they had to focus almost exclusively on electric vehicles. And it's still, the scandal and the aftermath still lingers over the brand, the dealers, and the employees. And uh, it was a forced pivot in many ways. And so the cars didn't survive, but their legacy has left this lasting impression on the car business that electrification is the way to go and that further improvements in diesel technology may be a dead end. And so a, a few other automakers were also caught up in diesel allegations, but those weren't quite as well publicized. This included Mercedes-Benz and Chrysler. And now the scandal related to the emissions saga for the TDI engines has basically convinced most automakers that it's not worth their time and energy to invest in diesel engine technology for passenger cars. And so this has largely, the legacy of these cars is twofold in that they've eliminated the prospect of diesel engine technology in passenger cars, and they've kind of refocused Volkswagen Group on electric cars. So the cars were a bit of a commercial success. They really shifted our thinking on how we could use diesel engines both at the time and they've shifted our thinking now in terms of how we think about uh, emissions testing and what how automakers think about their R&D. And also they fundamentally changed Volkswagen Group. So I think that the TDI family of powertrains is pretty influential in terms of its effect on the car business over the past 10 years. And Volkswagen Group's attempt at this moonshot technology, kind of this uh, low-cost, simple, uh, diesel engine, it didn't work. But uh, And so that failure has functionally permanently changed the automotive market for the long term and has given us one of several electric vehicle charging networks that will be critical as the, it, as the vehicle fleet in the United States shifts to being more and more electric. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of Integrated Derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. So neither of these cars or family of cars in the TDI case, while influential, come close to the number one most influential new product launch of the past 25 years, in my opinion. I think it's not even close. So this car fundamentally changed how we view electric cars, propelled automakers to invest substantially in electric vehicle technology, created a new automaker on the American automotive scene, and has launched this arms race to try and catch up with the technological advancement that was propagated in this car and future cars that this automaker made related to this car. This car also did a lot of other things. They, it, it pioneered the modern phenomenon 
of having a giant screen for all of our controls for better or worse. Some would say worse, some would say better. And this car that I'm talking about is the 2012 Tesla Model S. So Tesla as a company is already pretty influential. So there's a previous Tesla episode where I discussed this a little bit, but the Model S made electric vehicles sexy. And that is a huge contribution to the industry and to the business and in shifting our mindsets of what an electric vehicle could be. Because up until the 2012 Tesla Model S, even including the Tesla Roadster to a degree, most electric cars were largely science project type cars that were designed to appeal to engineers and enthusiasts and people who were excited about alternative fuels. And so the really good juxtaposition for this car is the 2011 Nissan Leaf, which was actually, it hit the market earlier. So the Model S was not the first electric vehicle on the market. But the Nissan Leaf, as much as I do love the Leaf, and I think it's a very good electric car and can serve the needs of many people, especially given its price point, the Leaf, uh, I don't know if anybody would call the Nissan Leaf sexy. Uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. It's not a very hot take, I think. But the Model S, when it came out in 2012, it was competitive with other luxury cars of the era. It was competitive with the BMW 5 Series, the Mercedes E-Class, the Mercedes CLS class, on which it drew some inspiration from, and even larger Mercedes S-Class and BMW 7 Series products. And in many senses, it was a better car that just happened to also be electric. So Consumer Reports called this car the, the best car they'd ever tested up until that point. And the Tesla Model S completely changed everybody in the industry's assumptions of what an electric car could be and what a luxury car should be. And it was so revolutionary in many different dimensions. And it also helped spark several different themes that have occurred since then, including having more screens in the car and um, electric vehicle propulsion and selling luxury electric vehicles as a way to encourage adoption of electric cars. The 2012 Tesla Model S was also instrumental in moving Tesla into the mainstream. And without the Model S and the revenue that it generated, we would have never had the development of the Model 3 sedan that would further democratize and broaden access to electric vehicles, which is crazy to think about now since Teslas are so expensive. But at the time in 2017, 2018, the Tesla Model 3 was pretty revolutionary in terms of improving access to electric vehicles. And I think the Tesla Model S is the benchmark of influential launches for the past 25 years. And I think it's a car that's historically significant in a way that we'll be talking about it. Uh, I, I don't know if it's on the same level as the Ford Model T and its innovation in assembly lines, but it's close. If it's not equivalent, it's very, very close as like the modern parent to everything electric on the market now. And so Tesla and the Tesla Model S showed that you didn't have to be from Detroit, Tokyo, or Germany to build a world-class electric vehicle that would also happen to be a somewhat luxurious vehicle. And so this emboldened a lot of other startups to take a chance on building an electric car. And so I would argue that without Tesla and without the launch of the Tesla Model S, we would have never had people to try and build Rivian. We would have never had Lucid. And we, would have, and we wouldn't have had other startups that maybe have not been quite as successful 
as Rivian and Lucid, but we wouldn't have this arms race to build a high-quality electric car powered by lithium-ion batteries. So in the Tesla episode, I talked about how the big innovation in Tesla was they wanted to make electric cars cool, and they did it primarily with the 2012 Tesla Model S. So lots of people forget that Tesla actually sold a car before the Model S called the Tesla Roadster, but the Model S is the one that everybody remembers Tesla for, and it has come to define in many people's eyes what the brand started out as and the beginnings of the electric vehicle revolution for real. So uh, we tried electric vehicles in the 90s and it kind of flopped and we're trying again and the Model S is is the beginning of that revolution in so many ways in a way that the Nissan Leaf is not. So the Nissan Leaf was also an engineering marvel but it didn't completely shift the industry's perception of what an electric vehicle should be. It largely represents what the industry thought an electric vehicle should be at the time, something that is optimized purely for efficiency, something that looks a little bit like a science project, something where the main focus is on improving the underlying technology and not making the car sexy and cool and the gotta-have-it car of the year. And so the Model S did all of those things while advancing battery technology and electric vehicle technology as well. So in that sense, it's the much more influential launch in my book than the Nissan Leaf was. And the Tesla Model S sold really well and continues to sell reasonably okay for an automotive design that's 10 years old at its core. And so it, it was a commercial success. It's come to define the brand. It has shifted our opinions on what an electric car could be and what a luxury car should be and it's changed the company for the better it has created the funds and stability that they needed at the time to build more products that have now become a platform for all these different initiatives that tesla is doing and so i think we'll be talking about the 2012 tesla model s for a long time and so i think that that's the number one most influential product launch in the car business of the last 25 years and now it's time for Rental Car Roulette. On this series of Rental Car Roulette, we are going to cover a 2021 Ford Escape that I rented from Hertz. And so I was driving this car around the city of Boston to do some work-related things. And this particular Hertz location at the Boston airport is very hit or miss on selection. And on the day that I rented, it was kind of a missed day for Hertz Boston, and the choices were pretty slim. So they had a bunch of cars. They were all the same things, many of which I've driven before. So they had some Nissan Altimas, some Chevy Trailblazers, and lots and lots of Ford Escapes. So since I haven't driven the newest Ford Escape yet, I decided to take the Escape. So I've driven the newest Altima before from Hertz. I've also driven a Chevy Trailblazer before from Hertz. So the Escape seemed like the move. And this particular Escape was the base 1.5-liter three-cylinder model without all-wheel drive and about 15,000 miles on the odometer, which was about what I expected. And this car had leather seats, and it had a nice sunroof, and so and it had the basics. So it had um, Android Auto, and it had automatic climate control, and some small niceties. 
And I found the car to be fine, but my biggest gripe that I remember from this car was the three-cylinder engine and the eight-speed automatic transmission didn't seem to play all that well with each other, especially at low speeds. So the transmission would kind of shake and hesitate at low speeds in certain settings, kind of like coasting through a parking lot or in bumper-to-bumper traffic, you would kind of hear... uh, the car shaking a little bit which i think kind of detracts quite a bit from the car so this car doesn't have an automated manual it doesn't have the older problematic ford power shift transmissions but it reminded me of that it reminded me of like an engine that's about to stall because you're not giving it enough gas which was a little annoying like i knew the car probably wasn't going to stall because it was a traditional automatic um but that that kind of rough feeling at super low speeds, I think detracts quite a bit from the car. The car was pretty practical. I got pretty reasonably good gas mileage for predominantly city driving that I was doing. I think I averaged 25 or 26 miles a gallon in a mix of highway and city driving throughout the Boston area. But the car's interior, uh, a lot of the critics say that it's not especially well built, and I agree with them. There were lots of hard plastics and The materials definitely seemed like there was a cost target in mind. But one of the things that you got to remember is the Escape doesn't have an especially high price tag to start with. And so that kind of mitigates it a little bit. But I think there's a lot of good things going on with the Escape. Visibility was good. The car handled well. And the seats are reasonably comfortable. And it was a really nice compact size. It's slightly lower to the ground and smaller than a lot of its competitors. And so it was a really nice car to have in the city. And I think the main thing that holds this car back is that three cylinder engine and eight speed automatic combination. And a lot of the professional reviewers say that the hybrid model that Ford sells and the plug-in hybrid model that Ford sells solve all the issues related to the three cylinder engine an eight-speed automatic. And so if I were buying this car, I probably would exclusively look at the hybrid and the plug-in hybrid models. And what's frustrating is the plug-in hybrid is not sold with all-wheel drive. Otherwise, I would have personally considered buying one for my own use because I'm in the market for a new car right now, and that car would have fit me really well if I could get all-wheel drive, which is something that I'm looking for in my next car. And so the plug-in hybrid escape, though, is a really good deal because it's the price is around forty thousand dollars, but then you have an approximately sixty-eight hundred dollar federal tax credit that's associated with the car, which brings the price of the plug-in hybrid below the price of the equivalent regular hybrid, and makes it really compelling if you're okay with having a two-wheel drive or front-wheel drive SUV here. And Uh, That pretty much just leaves the interior as the main gripe in the plug-in hybrid version, which kind of at these price points, there's a lot that you can forgive. I mean, it is fairly competitive with the Toyota RAV4 Prime, and the RAV4 Prime does have a better powertrain and a better plug-in hybrid setup and a better interior, but the Ford Escape plug-in is much easier to find. It's much less in demand. It's much easier to custom order, and it'll be much cheaper than the RAV4 Prime once Toyota uses up its remaining federal tax credits, which will allegedly be in the fourth quarter this year. It's unclear when Ford will also run out of its federal tax credits for electric vehicles. It might be around the same time as Toyota, or it might be one or two quarters later. And so if it is one or two quarters later, then the price gap 
between the Ford Escape plug-in hybrid and the Toyota RAV4 will widen further. And so overall, the Escape was fine. It didn't especially stand out, but it wasn't particularly offensive either, aside from that low-speed shaking and hesitation issue, which is easily avoidable if you focus on the hybrid or plug-in hybrid versions of the car, which, in my opinion, are the most desirable versions of the car anyway. And most buyers that are buying the gas version of the car appear to be choosing the Bronco Sport over the Escape. Uh, So they share a lot of the same components underneath. But the Bronco Sport is designed to look more like a Ford Bronco than uh, kind of this like egg-shaped SUV thing. And so... um, If I was going to get a gas version of this car, I probably would get the Bronco Sport. I think its design and its squared shape is more appealing to me, and it seems like a lot of consumers agree with that. And so I think Ford here actually should consider discontinuing the gas-only versions of the Escape and sell it exclusively as a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid, and then offer the Bronco Sport gas version for those looking for a gas car. I think the big reason why Ford hasn't done this yet is... The Escape has a has space and has the capability for Ford to be a car that they make and sell to corporate fleet customers as well. So sometimes automakers will prioritize certain cars as like targeted at corporate fleet. So the current Chevrolet Malibu is kind of the same thing. Most Malibu buyers are big corporate fleets. And I think the gas versions of the Escape are starting to play that role. I think put another way, it's not a surprise that there were so many escapes at Hertz. And so, uh, because consumers, retail consumers are choosing the Bronco Sport over the escape when they're shopping at the Ford dealership. So uh, if, if you're interested in the escape, I recommend the hybrid or the plug-in hybrid. I think especially the plug-in hybrid is maybe a little underrated as a, as a compelling vehicle choice in this segment, especially with everybody fawning over the Toyota RAV4 Prime. And so that's going to wrap it up for Rental Car Roulette, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode. So hope you enjoyed it, and I'll catch you next time on our next episode.